as you have probably begun to gather over the last four years, I like preaching in sermon series. I like taking an idea and a theme and over a set of weeks, sometimes three or four, sometimes as we have experienced this year, both in Galatians and the Old Testament, a little longer than that, take an idea and a theme and sort of expound on it and see it grow over time. This is not that. This is one day in which we are going to jump into the middle of the book of Haggai, spend some time there today, and next week we'll be somewhere else. We're going to jump into the middle of Haggai. I would encourage you to go ahead and start turning to Haggai now. Um, I will warn you, it's in my Bible, it is two pages facing each other, so it is quick for you to overlook it. If you are looking for it, turn to the book of Matthew and turn backwards a few pages. Haggai is one of what we refer to as the minor prophets, not because the work that they did in proclamation for God was minor, but because they're not very long. Perhaps it would be better if we were to call them the shorter prophets. Or, or as our Jewish friends do, refer to them as the twelve. Because there are, in fact, twelve of them. But these are, are prophets that, that sometimes don't get a lot of love. I'm going to ask you a question real quick. Just out of curiosity, does anyone remember the last time you heard a sermon from the prophet Haggai? I, I was hoping that someone would. <laughs> Trish had her hand up. <laughs> Haggai is one of what we call the post-exilic prophets. So there are three prophets here at the end of the Old Testament that prophesy after the return of the people from exile. This is important to set this stage a little bit, because we don't spend a lot of time with Haggai, so you may not know where he fits in in the story of God's people. So, so he's prophesying to God's people after they have returned from exile. God sends his people into exile in Babylon, and then they come back. Um, you'll remember last, I think it was last summer, um, we spent some time in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, in the book of Ezra, uh, Haggai is actually mentioned twice. He's mentioned in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 of the book of Ezra. The first verse of chapter 5 of Ezra is, But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, another one of those pestilent prophets who is a neighbor to Haggai in your Bible, the son of Ido prophesies to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the same God of Israel who was over, in the name of the same God of Israel who was over them. This is the time of Ezra. Ezra 6.14 again saying that Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying at the same time. So here's the, here's the timeline. I find timelines to be incredibly helpful for me um, because I'm a relational thinker. So I think of things in, in order. So, so here's, here is the timeline. In the year 486, the city of Jerusalem falls 
to the Babylonians. The temple is broken up and defiled. In the year 537, the first exiles return from Babylon because Babylon itself has fallen to the Persians. And then in the year 520, so 17 years after the first return of the exiles, that is when we find the time of Haggai, the time of Zechariah, the time of Ezra. And the important thing to note here is the people have yet to begin to rebuild the temple. They've been back in Jerusalem for 17 years and they have not yet started to rebuild the temple. Haggai is interesting. It all takes place in the year 520. We know when it takes place because of um, references that are made in the book. And in fact, it takes place within just a couple of months. Chapter 1 happens one month prior to chapter 2. And and in chapter 1, we see Haggai coming to the people and saying, this is going to be the Carter Colloquial translation, just so we're aware. Hey, guys, yo, what's up? You've been here 17 years and the temple still lies in ruins. You got really nice homes you built for yourself. You even have good paneling in the den, and you haven't rebuilt the temple of God. And so we see at the end of chapter 1 that the people respond. Haggai 1 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtal, who is a, a descendant of David and is sort of filling in in this role. He's not king, but he's filling in that sort of administrative role. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtal, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him, and so the people feared the Lord. And they began to rebuild the temple. And one month later... Haggai comes to the people again, and that is where we pick up the story. In Haggai chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shital, and the governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work. There's an exclamation point there. Work. For I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Do not be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this. Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. So that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. Says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. 
I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Do you think it's the declaration of the Lord of armies? This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we live in a world in which the heavens and the earth seem to shake, as we live in a time and in a place where sometimes it feels as if we are living on the debris and the rubble of a previous age of glory, help us to remember your promise that your glory, the fullness of your glory is yet to come. Your promise that you are still at work. Help us to remember your command to us to work. And so God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. As we read through Scripture, we see that there are certain stories, certain themes, certain motifs that occur over and over again that sort of help us understand the story of God and His people. Two of those, uh, two of the most important that are in the Old Testament are the story of the Exodus and the story of the exile. Stories that are reflections of each other but stories also that are a pre-reflection of the story of Jesus Christ. Stories that are a pre-reflection of what was to come when God would rescue and redeem his people, not from Egypt, not from Babylon, not even really from themselves, but redeem them, redeem us from sin and death. So we're going to Take that last one there. That these are stories that, that prefigure Jesus. We're going to take that. Let's put that to a side for a second. And let's think about these stories of exile and exodus. As we look through this, as we look at the, what we might call the wilderness generation, that generation that spends 40 years in the wilderness, as we look at the the exile generation, the generation that spends time removed from the promised land, removed from the temple, removed from God's own presence. Because remember that. God's presence dwelt in the temple. And when the temple was taken from the people and the people were taken from the temple, they were taken from God's presence. Presence that had been with them since the exodus. Remember, God's presence with them is a, is a pillar of fire at night and smoke during the day. This exile generation, this exodus wilderness generation, there are some things that they, that they learn, some things that God is teaching his people through these two experiences. One is this, obedience leads to blessing. Obedience leads to blessing. We spent time looking at the Ten Commandments earlier this year, and one of the things that I pointed out to you is is the the Ten Commandments are not there for the people to follow the rules so that they can be saved. 
They're to follow the rules because God has already saved them, but their obedience to the law will bring God's, not his salvation, but his blessing. The counterpoint to obedience leads to blessing is this. Unfaithfulness leads to ruin. The people that Haggai is speaking to see the consequence of that ruin all around them. They are literally in the ruins of Jerusalem. The people, their forefathers, were not faithful to the covenant. And their unfaithfulness brought ruin. The unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom brought ruin on them when the Assyrians carried them off. And the unfaithfulness of the southern kingdom brought ruin when the Babylonians came, defiled the temple, and carried God's people off into exile. Another way for us to think about this is this. Only true repentance and faithfulness to the covenant of God will lead to the coming of God's kingdom and to his blessing. True repentance and faithfulness to the covenant. This story of the exiles is so interesting to me. I, I hope it's interesting to you. In 1 Peter, when, when Peter is talking to, the, to us, to the church, Peter calls us exiles. He's, he's connecting God's people now to God's people in the past. Because Peter wants us to remember that the world that we live in now, this is not our world. This is not our home. Our world and our home is the kingdom of God. So we look. And I hope that we can look to the exiles and look to their return from exile and learn some things. I don't know about you, but I increasingly feel like an exile. Do you? My mother talks all the time. My mother grew up in a, in a town in Alabama, maybe a little bigger than Fairmont at the time, but very similar. It was the county seat town, so again, a little bigger. It was the market town. My mother remembers farmers bringing produce to market down Upper Kingston Road where Granny and Pa's house was. It was a dirt road during her childhood and then bringing to market with mule-drawn wagons. My mother will say that she was born just early enough to catch the last glimpse of the 19th century. But she grew up in a world in which there were, there were rules, there were norms, there were customs, there was etiquette. You knew what to do. If, if a lady invited you to a tea shower to celebrate the birth of someone's child, you knew, what to, you knew what to wear, what to bring, and how to act. Some of you are nodding. You remember that. When she was a kid, 
All of the stores in town, everything in town would close at, by noon or 1 o'clock on Wednesday. Because even if you weren't going to church, enough of everybody else was going to church on Wednesday night that nothing was open. There, there, were, there were norms. There were customs. There was etiquette. There were, there were rules. And, and sometimes maybe those rules could be a little restrictive. But it helped you know what was happening and what was going on and what to expect. That's what we talk, talk about kids, right? Kids need discipline so that they know what to expect. They know what the boundaries are, what the rules are. So they, they know how to act. They know that you don't walk into the pediatric clinic and get into a brawl. Got rules, norms, customs. It's what made us, us. It's what made the South, the South. It was sweet tea, etiquette, and the fact that we put our crazy people on the front porch and not in homes. But that's gone, isn't it? It's gone. You've got no idea. I went to a funeral recently, one not that I was officiating. And I had to ask for help. Because 20, 30 years ago, everybody would have been in suit and tie. And it wouldn't have been out of place for me to be in suit and tie. But I was going to a funeral and I had no idea what was going to be appropriate for me to wear. Because I didn't want to stick out. I didn't want to bring the attention on me. That's the last thing you want to do, right? When you're attending a funeral, it's not supposed to be about me. The rules are, are gone. There's an Irish poet, W.B. Yeats, one of my favorite poets. He has this poem called The Second Coming. The beginning of it is, uh, help me. Circling and circling in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. The sinner cannot hold. The world falls apart. The worst, the, be, the worst are full of passion and intensity, while the best, I can't remember it, sorry. Should have written it down. But the point is, writing in 1916, 1917, Yeats was, was feeling that the sinner could not hold. The things were falling apart. Do you feel that way? The sinner cannot hold. The rules are gone. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to act. We don't know how to drive. We don't know how to treat each other with respect and kindness and love. It can seem like our best days are behind us. If there is one thing, one thing that I could do for the community of Fairmont as a whole, it would get you to understand that your best days are not behind you. I don't care how big the tobacco market was. I don't care how much money you made. I don't care how bustling it was. Your best days are not behind you. But you act like they are. And you sit 
in the rubble. Just like the exiles, and you go, do you remember how great it was? Do you remember when we had 900 people in Sunday school? Do you remember how glorious this sanctuary was when it was filled? Do you remember? I remember, but I'm going to sit in the rubble and remember. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration, if you're following along here, you'll see here, it says Lord, but it's that, it's that capital L-O-R-D. The declaration of the Yahweh armies. This is the promise I made to you when I pulled you out of Egypt, when I called you to be my people, when I rescued you, when I redeemed you, when I intervened with Pharaoh for you, and I pulled you out, and I called you my own, and I made you children of the promise. That promise was I was not going to leave you, that you will not sit in the rubble, and that your best days are never behind you and always in front of you. That is the promise of God. And God says something after that. It would be great if it stops right there, but he says something after that. And he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Does it feel like the heavens and the earth are shaking? I was a freshman in college. I said that a while ago in Jackson, Mississippi. And as I stood outside of the cafeteria and watched those towers came down, I could feel the ground shake under me. Did you feel it? A couple of summers ago, as we watched cities across this nation burn, I felt the ground shake Did you? Eight years ago, is that right? Six years ago? Six years ago. When Matthew came and the waters rose, did you feel the ground shake? The heavens shook and opened up, didn't they? Four years ago, when it happened again with Florence, did you you feel the ground shake? Two years ago, when we, at the beginning of March, stood in this sanctuary and I told you, hey, there's this thing happening and coming out from China. We don't have anything to worry about. We're going to be great. It's going to be over soon. We're going to continue to be God's people And the next Sunday we couldn't meet. Did you feel the ground shake? 
when Sean got loaded into an ambulance and didn't make it to the hospital, did you feel the ground shake? I don't know about you. I'm tired of the ground shaking. I'm tired of the heavens shaking. But here is the promise. God is shaking the heavens and the earth for His glory, not for us. God shakes the heavens and the earth so that His name will be magnified, not ours. So that the nations of the world will see who God is. And all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the glory will belong to him. Do you feel the ground shake? Here's the deal. The ground shakes. The earth shakes and the heaven shakes and the sea and the dry land and, and And it can be overwhelm us. But remember what I said? Remember what I said about the about the story of the of the Exodus is is God redeeming his people, God calling his people and saving them? And then the story of the exile is God taking his people who have not been faithful to the covenant promise and disciplining them, but then pulling them out of exile and bringing them back to Jerusalem and giving them this promise that the glory of the temple that they were to build would make the temple of Solomon dim in comparison. And then God is quiet for 400 years. And the next time the people of God hears his voice, it is the cry of a newborn baby. And here's the thing. I don't care what the carol says. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man, and he cried. And then that, that baby grew in wisdom and in power. That's what Scripture tells us. And he went down to the Jordan to see his cousin John. And John said, I am not fit to tie, the, the, to strap your sandals onto your feet. What are you doing here? And Jesus said, baptize me. And John baptized him. And and the heavens shook. And the heavens ripped open. And the Spirit of the Lord descended on Jesus. This is my Son. And then that man called disciples. Gathered 12 men around himself. 12 men who had no idea who had no idea when they dropped their nets to follow Jesus, had no idea that 2,000 years later we would know their names, that they would have changed the world. And then that man took a journey to Jerusalem. 
to the temple that they're building in Haggai. And he says, my temple should be a house of prayer. And you can't do that. You made it a den of thieves. And so the, the sacrifices that you offer here aren't cutting it. And so here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going I'm to go to a cross and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to spill my blood for you. I'm going to let my body be broken for you. So that you never have to offer a sacrifice in this temple ever again. So that you never again have to name a high priest. Because I'll do that too. And then on top of that, what I'll do for you is I'll defeat death. Where death is your victory. Where, oh death, is your sting. Jesus took it. And he took it so that we would not have to sit in the rubble and in the ruins and go, I remember when. He did it so that we can look to the future and say, I see God's glory. Though the heavens and the earth shake, God's name will be magnified. And brothers and sisters, here is the truth. It will be magnified whether Fairmont First Baptist Church is here or not. It'll be magnified whether the Southern Baptist Convention rises or falls. It'll be named whether or not America is wiped off the face of the earth or not. God's name will be glorified because that's what happens to God's name. And even if every stung were t- stilled and every voice quieted, the rocks and stones themselves would sing praises to God because He is Yahweh of armies. And it is His declaration. Let's do something. Let's, this morning... Let's make promises to each other. Let's make covenant with one another. That we'll do the work of building the temple that will glorify God. And that we'll stop sitting in the ruins saying, and I remember when. Will you make that covenant with me? Will you, will you make that covenant with me this morning? I'm going to ask you, if you you want to enter into that covenant with me and with this church, will you stand together today? All right. Just a reminder. God holds people to his covenants. God holds people to his covenant promises. Here's what's going to happen for the rest of the service. We're in a moment here. We're going to have our hymn of invitation. We're going to sing. We're going to have the benediction. And then we're going to cut the live feed. After that happens, um, some of the deacons are going to come forward. We're going to hand out deacon nomination ballots for y'all to, uh, to fill out. 
We'll call the church in the session and we'll do that and then we'll, we will collect those and then those names will be given to you in the informer this week so you know who the, nominate, not who the nominees are. But that is what we're going to be doing um, through the end of the service just so you have some idea. We're, we're going to sing now. We're going to sing together as God's people.